started teaching in 1969, the summer of 1969, at the Columbus College of Art and Design um, uh, summer program with kids in the printmaking department. So I pretty much taught the full gamut from uh, K through 12 and uh, several colleges. My co-host Julia is not in the arts; she's a historian. Oh, so I'm wondering: is she someone who could <laughs> learn art from you, or is art absolutely? Something? I well, I, well, I always tell people I can teach anyone if you really want to learn. I mean, um, you. So, Everything you, don't, starts you don't believe in that that uh, old saw about you know uh, either you have the talent or you don't like you know you can't really be if, if you can't if you can't do it then you teach but I, I mean, you got to teach in order to do it so <laughs> it's complicated but um, if you teach um, basics and fundamentals you can um, teach people how to draw and how to paint but it has like with everything else it's a, a very extensive foundation and the problem right now in the art world especially since the pandemic uh, everybody's an artist and everybody's an artist until they meet me and then they don't like me because i always tell people i'm the real deal and it's like i play music until i'm with the real musicians (laughs) (laughs) okay so at what point during your bachelor's and master's did you know abstract art is the thing that i want to do Oh, it didn't happen that way. I, um, <clears throat> I, first of all, never wanted to be anything else. And my mother always says I couldn't have anything that would make a mark. I, I do on the walls, the floors, anything I could find something that would make a mark. So uh, my background started out uh, in fine arts, painting, drawing, printmaking, ceramics, and sculpture. And then I morphed into illustration my sophomore year, which because I liked to draw and loved drawing so much, I was, I would have been a very successful illustrator, but I didn't like people telling me what to do. And I found it very restrictive, not understanding that's how you make money <laughs> and went into, went into paint, went into fine arts and really um, loved painting. And then because I was pretty good at figure painting and drawing and copying stuff, I morphed into abstract art. And then I found people that, uh, at that time, uh, Mo Brooker was the first African-American artist that um, one of my teachers exposed me to. He was teaching that down in Cleveland, and I loved what he was doing with color. So my early works in my first piece in 1971 was a color field painting um, with quarter inch squares. So, and then from there, because of the sculpture, because of the printmaking, um, because of the ceramics, I was able to gain um, facility uh, with technique. And so then I start making, I've always made um, mixed media works where I was combining everything, sculpture, painting, performance. I came to Philly because my parents were still here and um, was at the academy for a year and then moved on to the University of Pennsylvania. That three-year period at Pennsylvania, I was doing on average 200 pieces a year and really formed a foundation that was basically uh, – really made me 
close to being what I call whatever famous is, but famous, famous, where um, I had cr created a look in my paintings. So my paintings look like velvet. And that was because I was putting aluminum powder, powders directly into acrylic and oil paint. So all these colors that you see today that you can buy in the store, I was way ahead of that curve. But my palette was based in a cultural aspect of what I felt was uh, mm -hmm. black art. And you are artists of color. And um, if you look at Afrocobra, they were the Afrocobra was a group that came out of Howard University, and they were the first group of African American artists that put together the, the not only the concept but the dialogue of the why. So you look at Charles Searles and um, out of Philadelphia, he was an Afrocobra member, and I was trying to be part of that. So there was a sense of color that related to culture, and so. You know, when people were laughing at me, I said, well, my neighborhood, did you see a guy with green pants, a red hat and red shoes? What the problem <laughs> is? <laughs> okay. And so when everybody was laughing at my work, I was painting a chroma contrast because of an extensive background in understanding color theory. I was relating chroma contrast to James Brown, Jimi Hendrix, Miles Davis. That's what my work was about. In 1979, two years after graduate school, I was trying to, in my, 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 my thesis was about how visual art as an African-American related to jazz. And I related that to uh, lyrical abstraction. So that first piece that was selected by Ann Donnencourt, competing with all the artists in Philadelphia, I win first prize. No one knows me, knows that I'm African-American. They see my resume, it has nothing to do with me being African-American, black artist. It's just the work until I showed up. Just a wonderful <laughs> smile and a handsome face. <laughs> and it went, uh, uh, I can't Seriously? see you now. Oh. And, uh, Seriously. Uh -huh. And I can show you the articles that, that I made a lot of noise. I had met Howardina Pendel, uh, one of the, uh, I think, founders of Gorilla Girls, who was a friend of William T. Williams, who taught me a lot about infiltrating and how to manipulate the system. Uh, was that the case with Nancy Hoffman, too? Was that the hurdle that you couldn't turn? No, no, that was a okay. different story. Because uh, uh, Nancy Hoffman's uh, assistant, I can't think of Tia's last name. Her husband was uh, a, a, a realist painter named George Shaker. And George Shaker worked with me at a summer camp called Bucks Rock Creative Work Camp in New Milford, Connecticut, where I worked for 30 years. And that was really the backbone of my survival because I had a lot of the, the kids that uh, studied at that summer program, founded by Ernst and Ilsa Bulova really supported my career. So my first show at King was, I had a show at Kinkilba House and then uh, Sin K with Ernie, I had met Ernie Critchlow. And that show I had at, at Sin K, uh, I think we sold, I think I had 30 pieces and I think I sold 24 of them total, 12 at the exhibition opening, which everybody <laughs> said like, whoa, how do you know all these 
white folks. <laughs> <laughs> and I was working at this Jewish summer camp, the most exclusive summer camp in, in, in America. And so I had a very strong um, following of kids that had studied under me that a lot of my, my students are famous, famous kids, uh, you know, smart kids, MIT, blah, blah, blah. Um, that camp was found, founded by Ernst and Ilsa Bulova, Bulova Watch people. What was the camp? So, camp's name? Bucks Rock Creative Work Camp. Okay. In New Milford, Connecticut. <laughs> but ultimately, you actually made it to famous. So, um, how much? <laughs> yeah, not yet. Not yet. You know, there's not a joke yet. like the, as soon as not you have yet. a Wikipedia article, not you're seen. famous, right? But it's. <laughs> Well, I, told so, you I actually know <laughs> academics who write their own Wikipedia article, but that's a different story. But um, how much of your work as an artist would you consider networking on the? In the process of becoming famous, how much is really, I mean, networking is actual work when you want to get someplace. How much would you say, did you have, how much effort did well, you have to put into that? Well, I believe in James Dupre. And sometimes when you're young, that ego gets in the way. And, um, but it can't deny the work. So if you're doing innovative work and then you have a people that come along and, um, Your work is now their work. I'm trying to be polite. Um, and now they're famous and you're not. <laughs> I learned in New York it had nothing to do with the work in the 80s. And uh, I made the mistake after seeing Basquiat's work saying that um, I don't bend or stoop. And that got in the way of... Uh, let me end it this way. Somebody asked me, <clears throat> you want to be famous... If you had a choice between being uh, fame or, or fortune, what would you choose? I said, give me the fortune because I can buy the fame. They say in New York, all you need to, to do is be rich, right? In New York, the money gets you ahead. And in Philadelphia, it's the connections. Would you say that's true? I don't know. I'm still trying to get the connections. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the work. Again, I, I, I had a gallery downstairs since the 80s. And... What happened was when I couldn't be in the best galleries in um, Philadelphia, I created my own gallery and then infiltrated the system through another gallery that happened to have seven artists of color. And I proposed an idea that when I look back in retrospect, if I had done it the proper way, I would have formed that group out of my own gallery Instead of going into a commercial space, creating a nonprofit uh, group of artists that happened to be all African-Americans, that then that gallery here in Philadelphia became the gallery. Still to this day, <clears throat> I'm, I get angry about my ideas, <laughs> giving them away. And uh, it is, if the work is what it is or what you think it is, people will find quality no matter what. So I made my self very exclusive in my little gallery here, which then creates a whole lot of different kind of resentment. Um, <clears throat> so my gallery has been very successful. Uh, it was only open by appointment. I had some very serious collectors uh, that looked at my work, uh, like my work, and purchased it on a regular basis. I was taught 
from uh, William T. Williams, always nurture your patrons. And so I was able, my real claim to fame is that I was able to make enough money to put three kids through college. That's a measure of success right there. One, one year I sold 340 paintings with no advertising. I had wow. patrons coming in the door buying 10 pieces at once. Uh, my biggest collector was one of the members of the Dave Matthews band because his cousin was the music teacher at Meredith school where my wife worked at, which we really helped build that, that school in our community here in uh, Queen village. And, um, <clears throat> over a three year period, this one individual bought 25 pieces. If he had continued to live, he was going to support me and his girlfriend <laughs> as he had the fortune. And um, so I have one show where I was um, in with uh, Basquiat, Romeo Beard, and Jacob Lawrence, um, Al Loving, and a couple other people that my benefactor put together. And so, again, uh, <laughs> it's not the old cliche, not who you know, what you know, it's who you know. Here in Philadelphia, even when um, my building was seized for intimate domain out intimate domain out of uh, thousand five hundred homes, I think I was the only uh, individual that won, and that was because of uh, who you know and what happened when they found out who I knew. It was too late, but there have been enormous support of of me and my my work. Um, it's just that. As an artist, you if you're really doing anything, it's never going to be good enough. It's like playing golf. No matter how good you get at the game, it's never going to be good enough. And so with me, after I couldn't get into, into the best gallery here in Philadelphia, I created my own best gallery, and I decided I would never paint the same painting over and over and over and over for the remainder of my life. I wanted to be like a tree. I wanted to grow as my life grows. So I have probably about 20 series or bodies of work. And if you look at artists today, there are a lot of artists that are copying that, that, that form rather than creating a Chevy or a Ford or a Bentley or a Mercedes and painting it over and over. So that's about commerce. I always ask my students, uh, are you interested in uh, personal growth? Or are you painting to make money? So many artists today are painting just to make money. Hmm. With your new gallery renovation, do you have a, a new vision or is it an extension? Of oh, I've never had done? an extension of what I've always done because after all, I'm, I'm, I'm an old hippie. <laughs> so with that, okay. I, uh, the gallery now, I want to make it even more exclusive. People, I, I was going to get to a point. People always say, your gallery's never open. And uh, like in disgust. And I would answer them with, you never made an appointment. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, I'm sure we've all been to exhibitions or the Barnes Foundation. We've all seen these like really knowledgeable people standing in front of a piece of art and then you know, having all these philosophies about what the artists want to say. And I've always been wondering, 
what would the artist say if he stood right next to you? You know, like sometimes people come up with, a, well, bless you, come up with such crazy interpretations. Well, and, and again, how do you feel about that? Well, that was, okay, okay. Historically, we can look at that um, and how it relates to commerce. And so what happened in my lifetime, there was a switch from um, academia versus the uh, innate artists. The outsiders, of course, they have a term for it now, are the outside artists. Some of that stuff is just absolutely great. Um, not all of it, but I always think of what would have happened if I had never gotten educated. The art saved my life. So there came a point where if you didn't have all this academic rhetoric, pardon me, I'm insulting anybody, uh, behind the work, you didn't get to play. You didn't get the bat. You didn't get the ball. You didn't get the shoes. You weren't allowed on, on the court or on the ball field. And now you have these credentials. For me, um, I got smart enough. The work got good enough where people were looking at it critically, academically. And I had, because of the 60s and civil rights, there was a window of opportunity that afforded me. And so I can't negate the importance of the education because that's the arena that you play in. And that arena only afforded very few of us of color to play in that arena. And by the time you got to New York, you know, I had the good fortune of sitting down privately when I was director of Brandywine Wine Workshop to sit for a week and talk to Jacob Lawrence. And um, he says, young man, you have enormous talent, but you're going to have to be patient and you're going to have to be humble. He said, at least you can go to your exhibitions and you've had relative success. Now, I could not even go to my exhibitions, but Romy could. <laughs> and you see how I get in trouble. <laughs> this, I, and I've had a, I've had a wonderful life and a wonderful career, and uh, been very fortunate and gifted with with some talent. But then that talent was afforded education. But I mean, I, I remember going to the first time I met Neil Welliver. I know Neil Welliver from a can of worms. And he walked into my studio and he basically um, was rude, condescending. And I just became belligerent. belligerent. And I told him where to go and how to get there. And he said, what did you say to me? I said, oh, you can't hear either. <laughs> <laughs> but the only reason I got away with that was he respected the art. I didn't know he was the head of the Graduate School of Fine Arts at the University of Pennsylvania, nor did I care. What mm -hmm. I did care about is what did you have to say about what I'm doing and how can I make that better? And so here I'm at, I end up at, at the University of Pennsylvania because he thought I had a lot of guts, but his real Morenis, what is it? his real hidden agenda was after I got the pen was uh, 
He said, man, you're really fascia. You can probably, you, you can paint anything. He says, how would you like to be my assistant? And I said, I didn't come here to paint your paint by numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so as we get to talking about all the rhetoric that's attached to the artist, I only imagine what will be said about me and long after I'm gone. The one thing I have been throughout my career, if you talk to anybody, and what happened to me at my studio, I had a, I had a space where it started out as an artist-in-residence studio. Um, Fioris West, who also attended the uh, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and um, went from Apafa to uh, Yale, and from Yale to 35 or 30 years of teaching at Ohio State University. Took a sabbatical, sabbatical and came to stayed at my studio for four months. It was one of the most unique and precious times of probably both our lives. He just passed away. I had so much admiration. <clears throat> Look, I'm choking up and getting serious, which I don't like to do, <laughs> about Fee, because he was just this amazing artist to me with his figures that were so innovative. And he talked about how <clears throat> we as African-American artists were, were omitted from history, and he only painted figures. Uh, um, and he had such an elegant, um, a to uh, he was able just to really relate that work culturally, intellectually, and historically. When I asked him, I said, you know, Fee, you're famous. He says, no, no I'm not. He says, you are. I said, no, I'm not. He says, yes, you are. He says, this is the first time in 15 years I've had time to put a brushstroke on a canvas where I'm not teaching. He says, I don't know, James, I've been around as long as you. I don't know anyone that has as much work as you. So that was a revelation. And the one before that was when I told Charles Searles, who was, I call my big brother. He's out of Philadelphia. Charles was bigger than life in his lifetime to all of us that, in the art world. <clears throat> and um, he was passing, he, he was dying from cancer at the time. And he, I said, man, Charles, I don't understand to keep, people keep, you know, omitting me. He says, well, James, you talk too much. He says, he says, you're burning down too many bridges, brother. I said, yeah, well, the truth is the truth. He says, but you got to understand, all of us, no one has sold as much work as you. <laughs> and I had to keep thinking about that. So what is this fame thing? What is this fortune thing? If you drop, you know, I went to Penn and, you know, by the time I got to Penn, and, well, actually, Scott Higgins did it. I'm in the studio with three trust fund kids. You know, that's a rude awakening when you walk into a studio and they have every color made by Goldens and, and, and gallon cans and every canvas and all the, and all the paint brushes. What am I going to do? I wanted to leave. And um, William T. Williams said to me, yes, but they don't have your talent. When I was teaching at UVA, I didn't get that faculty position because in academia if you have talent and the students like you you're their favorite teacher 
and you've got 20, 30 percent of your students changing from law school to become an artist. (laughs) 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 And their parents showing up at your house. What have you done to my Penley? He's a leading student in cancer research. And now he wants to go to Yale to be an artist. (laughs) (laughs) So that's who I am. So this other stuff, I'm hoping my legacy will be long after I'm gone that I made a difference. The art spoke for itself. The political art really frightened people. I always said, I don't make art to match the sofa. (laughs) So is your intention to, with every piece of art, spread a piece of your soul and leave a legacy? Or do you want to shock people with some of your uh, works? Or do you want to inspire people? What's your main goal in throwing your art out there. I've always wanted to be the best at whatever I did. That's why I have five knee surgeries, two <laughs> knee replacements, I'm the smallest guy on the field. My, my friends just say, yeah, James, you can't do that, but you got a lot of heart. You're going to get beat up. And after you get knocked out a few times, you start to understand like, that's who you are. So I never, the art, if you look at my art, you can almost see how old I was, what I was thinking about, what was going on, uh, historically, politically, culturally. And I hope that at some point, somebody really gets outside of the politics of this and recognizes uh, my contribution. 